Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Do you want to do your vocal exercises first? No. Do you need to move other things around? Wah, 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 wah. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Let Me Tell You a Story. How's it going, babe? <laughs> <It's> fine. <laughs> how you doing? Fine. No, seriously, though, how are you? Fine. <laughs> what? <laughs> what do you want? I don't know. A conversation? <laughs> Why? Because I love you and I care about you. Mm. Today's story is not so much a mystery. It's pretty straightforward, but I do believe that it will be a lesser known case and it's still wild nonetheless, and there's a lot to get into. Ooh, I don't even want to tell you anything. I kind of just want to get into it. Is that okay? Tell me a story. All right, I'm ready to tell you a story. <laughs> I'm going to let you. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Michael James Tavis was born in 1944 and grew up in Los Angeles, California. Now, mid-20th century Los Angeles is a lot different from L.A. in 2022, obviously. But it seems like there's just always been a lot of people in our city chasing one dream or another. Also, I was uh, today years old when I realized that the 1900s was not considered the 19th century. Did you know that? The 19th century is the 1800s. Yeah, but why? Because year zero... Year zero to a uh-huh. hundred is the first century. Yeah, and I figured that after I was like, oh, maybe it's because it started like by you by the time you reached like year ten hundred or whatever, year one thousand. I know people say ten ten forty four. Like once it was like, oh yeah, ten forty four, ten thirty three, that was technically considered the second century, right? Or what? the you know what I mean? No. no? <laughs> <laughs> what? Whatever, what you just said, yes, I realized that after the fact. That would be the 11th century. Okay, but there wasn't year like one, two. No one was calling it that. So 1044, what century is that? 11th century. Oh, really? Okay, whatever. It's one ahead because years zero to 100. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, what century is it? It's the first century. In my head, that made so much more sense. But I was still trying to make the point that I realized what you were saying way after the fact. But I swear I have said the 19th century out like in public out loud before referring to the 1900s and no one's ever corrected me. So Um, maybe all my friends are just as dumb as me. (laughs) Yeah. Michael James Tavis was no different than the other dreamers in LA. He was not chasing the Hollywood dream though, as so many were, but instead Michael James Tavis dreamt of finding his place within white sterile walls. What? (laughs) Because he wanted to be a doctor, of Mm. course. And Los Angeles is a great place to be if you want to be in the medical field, thanks to the University of California in Los Angeles. Obviously, this is pretty triggering for us, not going to lie, because we are very familiar with the Ronald Reagan UCLA Medical Center, which is a hospital located on the campus of UCLA and where our son has undergone three surgeries now, the latest being just last week. And it's been hell and we're running on fumes, but literally the story is not about how sad we are. This is about Michael James Tavis, okay? So UCLA is actually home to four hospitals and over 200 clinics. So it's easy to see why aspiring doctors choose UCLA to study because there's probably a lot of opportunities once you finish medical school since literally everywhere you look in that area is another UCLA hospital or clinic. 
Um, and we can speak obviously to that. It really is. I'm trying to explain it to people who are not from LA. Even if you travel a couple streets or whatever, you do see a lot of doctor's offices that are still underneath the doctor's office or on the sign. It's still affiliated with UCLA in some way, you know? It's just like one of those areas. Yeah, I mean, we walked like two miles down the street and it was... It's loaded. Yeah. It's absolutely loaded. <laughs> it's loaded with doctors. Bagels weren't good. The bagels were not good. But the doctors are great. The doctors are great. Our doctor's great. Our doctor is great. So that main hospital, the Ronald Reagan Medical Center, is considered the best in California and currently ranked number three in the entire country. And according to Newsweek, also currently holds the ninth spot on the list of the world's best hospitals, which honestly is actually insane it is insane i think it just kind of speaks to how big the medical field is on the west side of los angeles like truly because they clearly know what they're doing there and it's been like that forever so ucla first opened in 1955 so by the time michael tavis was embarking on his journey to the white walls he had one of the best schooling options available to him right in his own backyard in 1974, Michael Tavis officially became Dr. Michael Tavis, a licensed physician and reconstructive surgeon, which is the ultra-formal way of saying plastic surgeon. So something else I learned during my extensive, possibly unnecessary research, the word plastic in plastic surgery does not actually mean artificial or fake. It comes from the Greek word plastikos, which means to mold or to give form. The term plastic referring to being fake clearly can be contributed to pop culture. Now, some history on plastic surgery, babe. Plastic surgery, it might seem like it only really took off in the... Mm, <laughs> Wait, what century? 20th century. 20th century, thank you. <laughs> which, which, if you're thinking about cosmetic surgery, then that assumption makes sense. Even though that's also not true, but the earliest records of plastic surgery in the form of general reconstructive surgery actually date back to way before I thought it was even a practice. Do you want to guess? Uh, 1642. 800 BC. Oh, yeah. Was it like Greek? Some Greek stuff? It wasn't, actually. It started with ancient Indian physicians, and they were performing surgeries using skin grafts, which today would be considered reconstructive surgery or plastic surgery. So it was usually war that kept plastic surgeons in demand over the years because, let's be real, there was like a new war every five minutes, and when the war would end, people would look in the mirror or like in a shiny plate <laughs> because mirrors didn't exist. Mirrors definitely existed. No, they didn't. No, they did not. I actually looked up when mirrors were founded and it wasn't until way later. When? I think it was like the 1800s. I don't think that's right. Yeah, I swear. No. I swear. No, I swear. If you had metal, maybe like the mirror. The, the mirror. The, con a mirror. the concept of like foil behind the glass, yeah, maybe. Okay, but a reflection obviously was a thing. Like Yeah, but like people had like metal mirrors. When were mirrors invented? No, they were like looking plates. I swear. Yeah, but like shiny metal plates. That is still a mirror, isn't it? <sighs> no, it says before mirrors they used copper or bronze. Right. But an actual mirror was invented in 1835. Right, but that's... Okay, but they weren't calling it yeah. a mirror. They weren't calling it a mirror is my whole point. Right? They weren't like, let me look in the mirror. I don't know. They were like, what let me the look word? at myself Where's in this plate. Where's the word mirror? Where's the word mirror come from? 
the invention of mirrors. So someone obviously. someone invented a mirror and was like, I'm going to call this a mirror. Why are you holding on to this? <laughs> I mean, that's not, that has nothing to do with anything, okay? Tell me a story. Okay, I'm trying. <laughs> so every five minutes there's a new war, and when the war would end, people would look in the mirror or in a shiny plate, because <laughs> mirrors did not exist, mm. and they'd be like, yeah, that's a no from me, and then, then they would get their shit fixed by a plastic surgeon, Okay. So that continued throughout the 1800s and beyond because, again, wars on wars on wars. Are you seriously looking this up? Yeah. I could kill you right now. <laughs> oh, it's Latin, of course. A crystal used in magic? Yeah. Okay. Well, you've, you've taken this to a new level. Uh, a reflective I surface. I mean, yeah, so maybe, but I don't know. I'm just talking about, like, an actual mirror as we know a mirror today. I'm saying the word came first. Okay, who cares? <laughs> So that continued throughout the 1800s and beyond because, again, there were so many wars. And then mirrors were invented, which made it easier for people to want to restore themselves to the pre-war appearance that they had, right? And that makes sense. Now, it's no surprise that the biggest war the world had ever seen by the early 1900s was, of course... World War One. Yes. And World War One brought in a major expanded need for a whole lot of plastic surgeons. With so many new plastic surgeons, the field began expanding as well. And new procedures made their way to the forefront of plastic surgery, like aesthetic procedures, or what we commonly refer to these days as cosmetic surgeries. Fast forward to 1962. 60 whole years ago. And because I love playing this game, let's talk about 1962, okay? Because shit was crazy in 1962. And quite a lot of firsts in 1962 as well. So you got the first American man orbiting space. Do you know his name? Because I feel like you would know his name. I do know it. First American man. Yeah, I do know it. I know the Russian one, Yuri, Gre- Yuri Gregarin. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got one of those names that's just really blah. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> John Glenn. I knew that. <laughs> John Glenn, you're right. It is very blah. Americans were also introduced to the Space Needle. Um, an equally exciting new landmark was introduced to the masses. The man behind it? Stan Lee. The It, Spider-Man. Isn't that cool? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another landmark invention, the very first Nike shoe, babe, was debuted in 1962. You know what? how they invented the Nike shoe? Yeah, with the waffle iron. That's right. Yeah, I listened Good to job. that podcast. Good job. Yeah. Also, Walmart and Motel 6, mm. two luxury American staples. <laughs> Holy good shit. Yeah, obviously I'm kidding. Kmart was also introduced in 1962. And now look, 60 years later, it's dead. Does it still exist? Kmart? There's actually three Kmarts still open in the country. one in on Santa Monica Boulevard? No, no, no. They closed all the ones in California. Uh, But the one in Burbank is still standing there. We saw it the other day when we went to Popeye's, remember? And Harrison was like, Kmart! Remember? Uh, It's still safe to say it's dead, though, because Kmart was on par with Walmart at one point. And if you live in America, you have at the very least heard of Kmart. And if you're like me, you've been to Kmart like a billion times, okay? Americans also got to taste flavored potato chips for the very first time in 1962. Christ, pre-62, can go fuck off. Yeah. And so that, before that, it was just like plain potato chips. It was just chips. potato chips. No one thought to like, I'm going to put some mm-hmm. dust on mm-hmm. this. Listen, though, the flavor that they first got to taste happens to be our favorite flavor, babe. Uh, fi- flaming Hot? No. <laughs> no, but I totally understand you saying that. What is our favorite flavor? Salt and vinegar. Yes. 
So I'm talking about all these first because that's where my story is going. But just a few off-topic events of 1962, because like I said, 1962 was batshit, were of course the Cuban Missile Mm, Crisis that literally took the world basically to the brink of World War III, okay? Because the Soviet Union. Marilyn Monroe also serenaded the president on his birthday that year. And then she died later that year. Can you do an impression? Happy yeah, stop birthday, it. <laughs> Mr. President. <laughs> no, um, but then she died later that same year, obviously, which shook, like, Hollywood and really, like, the entire country to its very core, okay? In happier news, Johnny Carson became the host of The Tonight Show. Dr. No was released in the UK, becoming an overnight hit. America had to wait an entire year before they met Mr. Bond, which is so funny, because nowadays that would never happen. All right, let's get back to our story. Another first that would would inevitably play a major role in Dr. Tavis's life happened in 1962 as well, when a plastic surgeon named Dr. Thomas Cronin unveiled the very first silicone breast implant and was like, look, look. And every dude in the room was like, nice. The implants began being used almost immediately, which honestly is a very good thing because Before the silicone implant, people were putting some weird ass shit (laughs) into boobs to achieve a larger lifted bosom. And I mean like so weird. I was blown away. I'm talking wood. What? Sponges. (laughs) I'm dead. Sponges make sense. Polyurethane. Wood does not make sense. And even balls made of glass. They've invented a new thing for boob jobs. What? So now they're using like 3D printed proteins to make a cage, right? They make a cage in your body and it breaks down over a year. But during that year, the glandular tissue underneath fills it out. Mm. So the whole thing just disappears. So you get your own tissue, yeah. t- tissue <laughs> yeah. in the boobs. That's cool. They haven't like put it into practice yet, but they're about to. I mean, it's kind of crazy to think that the first silicone breast implant wasn't invented until the 60s, you that's, know? I think it's crazy that it was, I feel like that's earlier than I expected. Really? I always I always associate fake boobs with the 80s. Well, that's what I'm saying. I think a lot of people do. Yeah. Because it wasn't really talked about. But it really, as soon as it was invented, it began being used. The per, The first person who got a, a breast augmentation is, like, documented as being the very first woman. She was in America. It was a whole big deal because it just wasn't talked about. And that was another thing of that time, too. Like, sex became a thing in the 60s and 70s. And all of a sudden, people were like, oh, wait, I can talk about this type of stuff. But the desire has always been there, which is why before this, the breast implant – uh, from silicone as we know it. Putting wood in there. They were putting sponges. I think wood is more fucked up. I think polyurethane is the most fucked up. <laughs> yeah. And glass. <laughs> glass is also fucked up because people pop their implants a lot, right? What if you accidentally shattered glass inside of your breast? Probably, I'm sure that happened. Probably not good. Or you get a splinter. Yeah, and it just comes sharding out of your chest. Ugh, I can't even think about it, okay? Now, broader cosmetic plastic surgery still wouldn't really pop off in the way that we know cosmetic plastic surgery today until the 1980s. So that's why you associate it with it, right? That's when a bunch of plastic surgeons who were performing mostly medical reconstructive surgeries were like, 
okay, we are sitting on a gold mine and it doesn't even seem like the public even knows what's possible. So there became like a huge push to make cosmetic plastic surgery more known and also more casually available nationwide. And I say that in the sense that more acceptable, more socially acceptable. Hey, we can do all these things. Don't be shy. Come on up. That's when they really decided to make it a thing and they really saw that come to fruition when suddenly in the 90s, the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, insurance companies started refusing to reimburse patients who had sought out reconstructive plastic surgery. So then business lulled and that made plastic surgeons even more so want to push cosmetic surgery because it was like, hey, now we really need to try to get people who are just sitting there thinking about doing something to get to get something done because otherwise we're all going to be out of a job basically, right? Which for cosmetic surgeons, people who were just doing cosmetic surgery was great news because they had always been there just waiting for a more level playing field. So obviously we know by the mid nineties, the demand for cosmetic surgery soared thanks to people like Pamela Anderson and literally everybody else in the nineties. And that made Dr. Michael Tavis the only plastic cosmetic surgeon in Petaluma a very big deal. I've been there. Yeah. How'd you like that little history lesson? It was good. (laughs) The fuck? (laughs) So, like I said, Dr. Tavis was one of the top cosmetic surgeons in Northern California where he had relocated before marrying and having children with his then-wife, whose name I could not find anywhere for the life of me, and that's probably because she's not a big part of the story because they divorced in 1995, but I'm sure she's still a nice lady, okay? Dr. Davis did not have too much time to wallow, though, regularly performing liposuctions, facelifts, brow lifts, and breast augmentations, just to name a few. When he did get time off, Dr. Davis, who was a fine arts connoisseur, would paint and even take art classes himself. Okay. And it was his love of art that would ultimately introduce him to a fellow divorcee named Deborah Sigmund when the two met during pottery class. Oh. Pottery is very romantic, right? All that clay everywhere. It's hot. No. Everyone thinks it's romantic because they've seen ghosts. Yeah. Actually, it's just like kind of gross and it's really difficult and frustrating. Okay. (laughs) Well, for the rest of us who did not teach pottery for a living at one point in their lives, like you did, I'm telling you right now, it's hot. Don't ruin the dream. Have you tried pottery? Yes. Was it frustrating and messy and really difficult? I mean, honestly, it's by far like the worst thing I've ever made in my life. (laughs) That's what says you've done it. I'm pretty sure I threw it away right after I did it. You've done it and you agree with me that it's all the things I said, but yet you still think it's romantic. Yeah, but because you've seen ghosts. Yeah. Because Swayze. Well it's just like so sweaty. <laughs> and in the movie, yeah, you don't have to do it. No, with it your is shirt off. It is sweaty in real life. It's just sweaty for a different reason. It's sweaty because you're stressed and you know it looks like <laughs> shit. Okay, uh, all right. So it was love at first sight for the two, and by 1996, the two were married in Paris. When they returned to Northern California, Deborah joined Michael's plastic surgery practice. She saw to patients' well-being both before and after procedures, advising them on how to prep for surgery as well as the necessary aftercare, etc. I'm already going to throw a flag. Don't mix business and pleasure. Why? Bad things are going to happen. You know how I know? Because you're reading me a murder Mm. story. All right, well... (laughs) 
Along with the other surgeons and employees at Michael's practice, the office truly ran like a well-oiled machine and business soared. Unfortunately, that would all come crashing down on July 3rd, 1997. Oh, day before America's Day. Yeah. I was five. You were 18. Hell yeah. When we play this fun game that we do and we're like, I was 10. I was... 23. It's way weirder when I was five and you were 18. Why is that weird? It wasn't like I was like looking for a five-year-old Sinead. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> right. Ew, that's so messed I up. I was like busy taking a little Oh, drugs. God. You had already <laughs> lost your virginity. I was five. Yeah, I was out. I was mixing it up with all the English people in Dude, the clubs. You know what? I, I was listening to Red Handed today and they were like half your age plus seven. That's like acceptable. So half your age is, you're 43, so it's 21 and a half plus seven, it's 28 and a half. Time to get a new version, new model. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You've aged out. I have aged out. (laughs) I mean, I aged out from birth, (laughs) clearly. All right. So that morning on July 3rd, 1997, Dr. Tavis and Deborah were rushing to get to their office for an early morning appointment. Following Deborah's 45th birthday celebration the night before, the couple were a little slow to start their day, okay? There were no time for hangovers because they had an 8.30 a.m. appointment. As they hurriedly drove to the office together, Deborah thought, you know what, she'd better call ahead and let their office manager, Kay Carter, know that they were on their way. Because after all, they didn't want their 8.30 a.m. appointment waiting too long without at least some word or heads up from the doc. But calls to the office went unanswered, which was really weird because at that time, Kay should have been there, answering calls, doing her job. Michael and Deborah were obviously confused, sure, but neither could have ever expected the events that lie ahead. As they pulled up to the clinic, it was immediately clear that something was off because the first thing they saw was their first patient, the one who they were running late to meet, waiting outside the office as if nobody was there to let her in. Which, to be honest, would have been weird enough as is because the front door of the clinic should have already been opened, especially since the office manager, Kay, could see that they had an appointment first thing that morning. Now, the fact that Kay had failed to answer the couple's calls that morning seemed to make more sense seeing their patient waiting outside the office, right? Had she been a no-show to work? Well, that was not likely because her car was parked right there, right in front of the office. So clearly weirded out, Dr. Tavis and Deborah parked their car and they head inside the office through the back door to figure out just what the hell was going on. When they entered the office, the smell of freshly brewing coffee was already rich in the air as it was every morning. So clearly Kay had been in at least long enough to get the coffee going, but now she was nowhere to be seen. In fact, the office was completely silent. Dr. Tavis quickly headed to the front of the office to let the waiting patient in while Deborah started unloading her stuff in the back. As Deborah started settling in, she heard her husband open the door and greet his patient. The two had exchanged a few words up in the front office before she heard the patient tell the doctor, quote, I've seen 28 surgeons, end quote. That's when Dr. Tavis responded, quote, I'm sorry, I care, end quote. Hearing this exchange, understandably intrigued Deborah, who perked up to try and make out more of the seemingly dramatic convo. But before Deborah could make out anything else between her husband and the patient, loud gunshots rang through the air, which sent Deborah running for her life out the back door before she was able to seek refuge at a neighboring office. Once safe inside that office, 
She frantically called 911. Officers rushed to the scene, but nobody was prepared for what they would find inside the eerily quiet plastic surgery office. Are you intrigued? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, yeah. It did not take long for authorities to find Dr. Michael Tavis, who had been shot a total of four times dead at the scene of the horrific crime. It would later be determined that Tavis had first been shot in his chest. Based on the fact that he was found laying in the hallway, which led back to the back door that they had entered through that morning, police presumed that after he was shot in the chest, he tried to run. But as he ran, he was shot again, this time in his side. It was believed that at this point he would have likely collapsed. That's pretty easy to assume. Most people are not able to keep running when they're shot, let alone for the second time. And after he collapsed, authorities presumed that he was then shot twice more in the back as he lay in the hallway of his office. So definitely not like a shoot and run attack by any means. Tavis had been shot multiple times and it appeared that the intent was not just to injure the doc, but to kill him. Unfortunately, Dr. Tavis was not the only victim discovered at the scene. Authorities also came upon the office manager, Kay Carter, laying on the floor near her desk. Michael Tavis, who had been rushing to greet the waiting patient and now alleged murderer, had just missed her, who had been shot once in her head. However, miraculously, Kay was still alive. I did read that she was like moaning, but she could not respond to anything. That's wild. It is wild. It also means that she was not moaning when uh, Tavis was running through the yeah, office degree, right? Around. She came around, exactly. She was critically injured, obviously. So she was rushed to the nearest hospital where police hoped that she would survive, not only because one less victim is always amazing, but also because at this point it seemed like that there were only two people who could shed some light on the brazen attack, and one of them was already dead. If the authorities were really lucky, maybe Kay would even be able to name the person who had seemingly fled the scene after taking one life and trying to take another without being seen by anybody else. Since the front door had, in fact, been locked when Dr. Tavis and Deborah had arrived that morning, police presumed that the gunman or woman, gun person, had entered the clinic through the same back door that the employees did before shooting Kay Carter and then exiting the office the same way they had entered through the back door and then walking around to the front of the building to lie and wait for Dr. Tavis, pretending as if she'd been waiting outside all along. Sneaky. Mm-hmm. Since Kay had been shot just once and that the assailant then waited for Dr. Tavis, who was shot four times, the police rightfully assumed that the real target of this brutal attack was, in fact, Dr. Tavis. Kay Carter had probably just been collateral damage and that the attacker wanted to make sure that nobody was going to stand in his or her way of confronting the doctor. As Kay Carter's fate lay in the balance in a hospital room, police got to work to track down a, su- a suspect. Although Kay Carter may have a lot of knowledge if she did survive her wounds, There really wasn't any time to wait. An armed and incredibly dangerous murderer appeared to be on the loose. All right, but let's pause for one second because I'm sure there are listeners who are thinking exactly what I was once I got to this point in the story. Shouldn't you check the appointment books at the office? Right. Now, as somebody who used to be a front desk manager at a a salon. Mickey Mouse signed in. Yeah, and I I could not find anything. And I looked because I was like, wait a second, just check who made the appointment. Then there you go. There's your killer. 
but there was nothing about this anywhere. And I know for a fact that they were not able to track the suspect down that way because obviously this story has a resolution. So I'm assuming either there was a fake name used or it wasn't written down or something because it's not it's not reported anywhere else. But yeah, I was like, hello, check and see who had the 830 appointment. Bam, there's your killer, right? So I'm I'm assuming a fake name was used, honestly. Mm. Maybe it was like, oh, I'm a new patient or whatever, that type of thing, okay? So the investigation started where all murder investigations begin, with the person closest to the victim. Deborah relayed the morning's events to authorities, including the moments leading up to the fatal attack on her husband, including the cryptic conversation that she had overheard between Tavis and the mystery patient. Police naturally wanted to know if Deborah had any idea who the patient could have been, was there anybody at all who may have held a grudge against the popular plastic surgeon? And Deborah was like, well, I mean, yeah, I can actually think of a few. And uh, it turns out, babe, that there were actually more than just a few people who did not like her husband, and they were all former patients. On July 5th, two days after the attack at the plastic surgery clinic, the LA Times ran an article saying that police were currently looking into the possibility that a former disgruntled patient was behind the murder, obviously taking the lead from Deborah, who at that point had provided a list of former patients who had been left less than pleased after undergoing procedures at the hands of Dr. Michael Tavis. Uh-oh. Some of these former patients had even sued Dr. Tavis. In fact... Tavis had found himself on the receiving end of 12 different lawsuits and complaints, some before the medical board, ranging from medical malpractice to negligence to straight-up incompetence. Now, that might make you raise an eyebrow like, okay, what the F was this guy doing? But when it comes to plastic surgery, encountering extremely dissatisfied patients is actually like really common, right? And when people are really extremely dissatisfied, they file complaints. And depending on how dissatisfied they are, complaints can quickly turn into lawsuits, which honestly is not unheard of, I think, in any medical field, really. But when it comes to Tavis, looking through some of the complaints, I do find myself going back to questioning what the F the guy was doing. One complaint said Dr. Tavis finished a procedure without removing gauze from the patient's face. Oh, that can happen to anyone. It just screams Dr. Death to yeah, me. Yeah, it really does. That's <laughs> really, the first really thing does. I thought of it. Yeah, I'm like, okay, what? <laughs> what? That's not normal. Even if it happened just once, I would still be like, yeah, no. What are you doing? It's not good. It's not good. Yeah. So knowing that he had 12 lawsuits, I'm like really, really curious what all the complaints entail and how many were justified actually right well is it 12 lawsuits like ongoing or is it 12 lawsuits in the total history of his practice i think at that point he had had 12 lawsuits total in what time frame well he became a plastic surgeon in 1974 now it's like 1996 so 20 years that's not that bad that's yeah like but he one only relocated years. in the 90s to petaluma and i'm pretty sure all of his lawsuits were in northern california well everyone you, you we've been there everyone's pretty uptight Yeah, that's very true. No offense if you live up there, but it's true. (laughs) Um, Okay, so to play devil's advocate Mm. here, though, even though gauze in the face, okay? I get, look, mistakes happen. Yeah. Patient dissatisfaction was showing up more and more as cosmetic plastic surgery became more available to the general public because broadening the pool of patients meant that surgeons were being introduced to more and more people. 
now, many of whom had no real medical need for plastic surgery, but rather just the desire for cosmetic procedures. And while I fully support anybody who chooses to undergo cosmetic plastic surgery because it is your body, please do what you want. There is also a very real possibility that as plastic surgery was becoming more accessible and continues to become more accessible to this day, surgeons will meet more and more patients as they were back then who are seeking cosmetic procedures and surgeries solely due to a mental disorder called BDD or body dysmorphic disorder. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense that not for everyone, but for some small percentage of people, if you have a problem with your body already, mm -hmm. then after you've had a procedure, you're still going to have a problem with your body. Totally. If you have a if you have a warped sense of yourself. B B was it B BDD, but body BDD. dysmorphic disorder. BDD. BDD, body yeah. dysmorphic disorder. BDE is the other thing. <laughs> What's BDE? Big, Big dick, dick energy. energy. <laughs> yeah, no, not not quite. <laughs> that and, could also be body <laughs> Yeah. Honestly, though, we have all seen it, right? Sometimes people do go too far. Though what qualifies as, quote, too far is obviously up to opinion. And even if you feel like someone has had too much work done, it does not automatically mean it's because they're suffering from BDD. So BDD is, in its most simple definition, a mental illness involving an obsession with a perceived flaw in appearance. Now, the key word there, obviously, is being perceived, right? right? Meaning the person suffering from BDD is usually the only person who sees that flaw as something that needs to be fixed. It is imagined, and no matter how many times they undergo anything, it's, that flaw is still going to be there. It's body dysmorphic. It's dysmorphia. That makes sense. According to the National Library of Medicine, the likelihood of plastic surgeons encountering patients with body dysmorphic disorder increases as the popularity of cosmetic surgery increases, meaning that statistic is likely still proving true to this day. And like, duh, that's not a crazy statistic, like I said, because more and more people were getting cosmetic plastic surgery. Like, if you're in a room with 10 people, the likelihood of you knowing someone in that room is obviously going to be less than if you're in a room with 500 people. It's not some crazy, weird trend of the time. It's just facts. It's just probability, really, is what it comes down to. Yeah. Body dysmorphic disorder has been around for a very long time. It just hadn't been recognized until the late 80s. And unfortunately, that likely meant that people suffering from the sometimes debilitating disorder did not have the necessary treatment readily available to them as psychiatrists were still educating the general public about it well into the 90s. I think it wasn't even added into, into the, um, the index until the 80s, I'm pretty sure, because it just wasn't, people just didn't recognize it, right. you know? So obviously I don't know for sure, but you could see how it would be possible that as cosmetic surgery was taking off in the 90s, there were doctors that may have been encountering patients with undiagnosed BDD and that maybe these surgeons were not really trained in what the proper protocol would be when encountering a patient with BDD or even what to look for in a patient in order to determine whether or not they may be suffering from the disorder, which would then influence the way in which they went about 
their surgery plan. Again, in the National Library of Medicine regarding BDD and plastic surgery, it states, quote, given the ethical, safety, and legal considerations involved in aesthetic procedures in these patients, accurate identification and appropriate selection for procedures is crucial. Okay. That's tough, though, isn't it? When your business is cosmetic surgery. Yeah, and you don't really know much about this disorder and what to look for, and your entire job is based around providing uh people who are dissatisfied with yes you're providing a service in order to make people feel more beautiful so if somebody doesn't feel beautiful you're literally trained to to make them feel beautiful right so you do see where this story is going right but while police may have been focusing on the list of former disgruntled patients they weren't like oh and i bet if the shooter is a former patient they have bdd (laughs) no one was thinking that they just knew There were a whole bunch of people who had motive and they needed to track them all down in order to clear them. Former Petaluma police chief Patrick Parks told Oxygen Snapped, quote, our investigators began working actively to follow up on them to see if there was anything unusual in their behavior. Did they have criminal arrest records? Had they made prior threats? And so they began working on each of these people as potential suspects, end quote. As police worked through the list, making contact and interviewing each potential suspect, a tip came in from a woman named Deborah. Hold on. Hold on a minute. Yeah. I know how to find him. Hmm. What did they say? I've had 25, I've seen 25 surgeons. Yeah. That's how you find him. Yeah. And I'm sure that's how they started looking into some of these people. For sure. For sure. So Deborah, not to be confused with Tavis's wife, Deborah, oh, okay. she worked in a building near the plastic surgery office, and after hearing of the murder, she thought she may have some information for investigators. According to Deborah, a suspicious pickup truck had been chilling outside the plastic surgery clinic both a week before the murder and on the morning of the murder. And there was an equally suspicious woman inside the pickup truck. Police took the lead seriously, and when they were unable to get in contact with one woman on the list of disgruntled former patients, a.k.a. potential suspects, they looked into Deborah's lead even more. The one question mark that remained after authorities worked through their list was a woman named Teresa Ramirez, a nurse from Santa Rosa, California. Teresa had been through it, okay, after she was diagnosed with breast cancer in 1988. Following her diagnosis, Teresa underwent a double mastectomy, even though the cancer was only detected in her right breast. I guess if you're getting one taken out and then you're going to get eventually cosmetic surgery Mm -hmm. to replace it, you don't want one and one. Yeah, I think like a lot of people getting a double mastectomy and then you just start from scratch, you just get new boobs, right? Right. Not to get like too deep or too Mm -hmm. abstract, but like sometimes when I think about all of the things that can go wrong with diseases Mm -hmm. and stuff. Mm -hmm. It just makes me really, like, miserable about life. No, totally. I mean, you saw, like, after I read that study about when they tested those people and it was, like, 90% of those people in that area. Had, like, weird pesticides. Yeah, had pesticide. uh, Like, 90% of people with cancer had that pesticide still present in their body. That that kind of stuff makes me really sad because it's like, how much do we expose ourselves to that cause things that you just do? You're just living your life. But yeah. literally everything causes cancer now. And that's, there's so much chemicals. That's the problem with uh, salt and sea. Yeah. 
all the runoff from all the agriculture ends up in the Salton Sea. I mean, that depressed me too. After I read that article about that woman who said that she had to pack an extra change of clothes for her kids in their backpacks every day because everyone gets nosebleeds. Right. And because you live in that area, just living your life, you are exposed to cancer causing chemicals. You then get cancer and then doctors are able to tell you, oh, it's because of where you live. That sucks. Yeah. Well, that's why they should ban pesticides. Absolutely. So after Teresa went through a double mastectomy, she then went to Dr. Tavis for a reconstructive surgery. Um, and she was super happy with the results until about a week later. Oh, no. Claiming, and I don't even know, may, maybe rightfully claiming, who knows, that her breasts were uneven. Okay. And I mean, I'd be pissed too. Most women know what it's like to have one boob slightly bigger than the other. But I know someone whose boobs are a full cup size different in size from one another. And it's something that we have talked about multiple times for like years. So depending on the unevenness, I can totally see why that would be annoying as hell. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I also know that if you think about the procedure... It must be so fucking difficult to get everything symmetrical and lined up. Like, I have a problem lining up set walls and Mm -hmm. seaming them. Mm -hmm. Someone's, like, doing a a reconstructive surgery in a human body. Right. The idea is already insane. Right. And also you have to take into consideration the trauma from undergoing a double mastectomy. Getting a cancer diagnosis, undergoing a double mastectomy, and then just wanting to feel normal again you're already whether or not you have anything else going on already you are you're going through something very very personal and it makes you very vulnerable and it probably stirs up a lot of dark feelings of just wanting to feel good again right you have your boobs taken off as a woman that's tough especially in the 90s what everything was like hypersexualized i mean everything is still hypersexualized today but you know what i mean it was so it was so big back then big boobs were so and fake boobs were also like everyone's getting fake boobs around you everything looks amazing right and you go in and you expect it's going to look like something and it just doesn't i'm sure yeah there's so many other factors that can contribute to why you would be like, this is not what I wanted, okay? But you might start to question Teresa's judgment because by the early 90s, Teresa had undergone 13 different breast augmentations with each surgery leaving her more and more dissatisfied than the last. When she tried to have another surgery, her health insurance flat out refused. She's already had 13. So they're like, no, 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 no. So at that point... She's desperate for another surgery. She still is trying to get the boobs that she wants. And she goes back to Dr. Tavis. And he's like, I don't know what to tell you, blah, blah, blah. And she loses it. She tells him, you know what? If you don't fix this, I'm going to puncture my breast implants myself if you do not fix my boobs. And he's like, what the hell is happening? Again, I think in a perfect world, after 13 surgeries, you would hope to God that one of those surgeons would have been like, maybe there's something else going on here. You know what I mean? 13 surgeries. You can see all the scar tissue. You can see all the incision marks. Why has nobody asked her? 
like, tell me about your other surgeries. What else is going on? How come nobody is questioning this? And then if you are a doctor, and I get it, I get that the time was different. But if a patient comes in and says, if you don't fix this for me, I'm going to puncture my breast implant myself. That is like a threat on your own their own safety. Like, why is nobody alerting anybody else? It kills me when I read this. I was like, how is nobody being like, hey, this woman's in a really bad place. She needs help. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's scary. It's actually scary to me that no no red flags pop up. And there's so much more, and it's terrifying. Okay. So Tavis ended up performing yet another surgery. But again... Teresa was like, nope, you didn't do it. You didn't do it right. She's not satisfied. By this time, she had earned herself quite the reputation in Petaluma amongst all medical professionals, okay? Everyone knew she was literally impossible to satisfy. But that didn't stop her from seeking out further treatments. After a car accident in 1992, Teresa Ramirez was awarded $100,000 when she claimed that the accident led to one of her implants leaking as a direct result of the accident. And the money that she was awarded then helped fund Teresa's next surgery with one of the best plastic surgeons of the time, Dr. William Shaw, the head of plastic surgery at UCLA. Full circle moment here. Dr. Shaw replaced the silicone in Teresa's implants with her own body fat. So he was like, you know what? Let's take the silicone out. You know, if you have an issue and you say they're leaking and they're uneven and blah, blah, blah. How about we do something very natural and we actually use your own body fat to make real boobs for you. And maybe you will like it. Okay. Although he would later go on to state that Teresa's implants had, in fact, been fully intact after the car accident. So he knows that she's coming to him with money awarded to her because her implants are leaking. He sees that her implants are not leaking. During surgery, I presume. Yes, and again, does not say anything to anybody, even though this woman has been awarded $100,000. So if you're not going to do it for ethical reasons, wouldn't you then alert the the health insurance or whoever paid her out who can then alert authorities who can then hopefully get this woman some help. Do you know what I mean? It's crazy. All I see is red flags, but between all the surgeons and her health insurance and the courts, nobody, nobody thought, hey, this woman's dealing with more than just bad plastic surgery. Yeah, but in the 90s, you could legitimately call someone crazy and people are like, yeah, they're crazy and then move on. Like there wasn't, The idea of diagnosing people with like actual psychological or personality disorders didn't. I know. Just wasn't that common. I know. It wasn't. I I get that. I get. I'm not saying that anyone was was expected to diagnose her, but I know for a fact that no, there's no way that after all of these people, this woman came into contact, there wasn't at least a handful of them that were like, "This woman is dealing with something." Yeah. No, I I agree. Teresa had even sued Dr. Tavis back in 1992 also, but her suit was dismissed due to a lack of evidence in 1995. So it took three years. It was finally dismissed. In her suit, she had claimed that her implants had actually leaked and she had even sued the manufacturer of the specific implants that she had received, Dow Corning. So I'm not sure if this suit came before the car accident in 92 because I can see in 92, maybe she was desperate for, for more money since her insurance wasn't funding her surgeries anymore. So maybe the car accident claim and the suit against Davis, right, was all part of her frantic efforts to get more money, 
right? So by the time the insurance is like, no, no more, she's like, okay, well, I have to do something. So she sues Dr. Tavis, and then she also makes a a wrongful acclaim after the car accident. One of those works, the car accident, eventually her suit is dismissed. According to Teresa's sister, she had so many follow-ups with Dr. Shaw too, but was fully convinced that each procedure was more botched than the last. After her lawsuit was dismissed, 1995 saw Teresa's behavior take an even more dramatic turn. She confronted Dr. Tavis in front of his entire office, calling him a butcher, and she exposed herself to a doctor, Robert Fees, who worked for her HMO, because she obviously had bad blood against her insurance company. And her sister would go on to say that her actions would only get worse after she was diagnosed with diabetes the following year. So on July 7th, 1997, four days after the murder of Dr. Michael Tavis, police responded to a report of a possible medical emergency at a local hotel in San Francisco. Upon entering the hotel room, authorities found Teresa Ramirez unconscious. Ramirez had fallen into a diabetic coma and she was rushed to the hospital. As police surveyed the room, they stumbled upon a few questionable items. They found $5,000 in cash, a train ticket to Southern California, two guns, and a notebook. Inside the notebook was a list of names with extensive personal information pertaining to each listed individual. One of the names stood out, and I'm sure you can guess whose name it was. Dr. Travis. Oh my god, I knew you were going to fuck his name up. Dr. (laughs) Travis. Yes, Dr. Michael Tavis, okay? Under Dr. Tavis's name, Teresa had listed both his home and office addresses, info on his wife, as well as his office manager, Kay Carter, including Kay's address and her license plate number. But Tavis wasn't the only doctor in Teresa's notebook. In fact, she had documented many of the surgeons she had seen, including Dr. Fees, the doctor who Teresa Teresa had confronted by exposing herself, Mm. remember? And of course, UCLA plastic surgery star, Dr. Shaw. Shaw. Yeah. And all of these doctors' names, including one belonging to a now-murdered doc and the guns, obviously looked hella suspicious. We're talking four days after the murder. Police are called there for a completely different reason, but they're like, wait a second, what, the, what, what is going on here? As the investigation would unfold, the notebook would ultimately be determined to be a hit list. So they tested the guns found in her room, and sure enough, ballistics from one of the weapons matched the gun that was used to shoot both Dr. Tavis and his office manager, Kay Carter, who, mind you, is still fighting for her life in the hospital. She has not recovered. So when Teresa Ramirez woke up from her coma, she was greeted by a room full of authorities who quickly put her in custody. Imagine, that's like one hell of a way to wake up. I was thinking about how angry you get when I wake you up and I'm like, babe, what was that noise? So annoying. This is way worse than that though. You know what I mean? Way worse. (laughs) So just think about that, okay? Could be worse. No. So they had enough probable cause, obviously, to hold Teresa Ramirez. And according to reports, she was guarded while she was recovering in the hospital. But I also read a couple of reports that said that she wasn't initially aware that she was even under arrest. And maybe she was, but they didn't tell her, or maybe they were still waiting on formal arrest charges to be justified. Either way, the evidence that would come out would show just how motivated this woman was to carry out more than just one brazen attack. So remember how they found that train ticket to California, Southern California? Yeah. 
So it turns out that train was set to arrive at the Van Nuys station, which for all you non-Californians, Van Nuys is a neighborhood in L.A., but neighborhoods in L.A. are a bit different than what you might be thinking if you haven't been to L.A., just because everything is super spread out. So these, quote, neighborhoods do feel pretty big. But Teresa was not heading to Southern California for a little getaway or anything. The station was actually just a 10-minute drive from Dr. Shaw's residence in the Valley, leading police to believe that she fully intended on carrying out another hit after she killed Dr. Tavis. And if they had any doubts, they were also able to uncover that Teresa's movements before Dr. Tavis's was shot actually had led her to another doctor's house. Teresa had actually first visited the home of Dr. Fees, the mm. one who she exposed herself yeah. to, who fortunately for him, he was out of town that day. Mm. All of this made formally charging Teresa Ramirez with first-degree murder and attempted murder pretty damn easy. By the time 1999 came around, Teresa and her attorneys prepared for trial in which they would argue that Teresa was not guilty and not guilty by reason of insanity. Two not guilty pleas, which honestly I did not know was a thing. Her attorney, Harry Allen, pointed to Teresa's inability to control her actions due to her debilitating mental disorder, body dysmorphic disorder. He pointed to the fact that Teresa had such a distorted view of not only her own appearance, but also every single surgery and procedure that she had ever undergone. She literally could not see the surgeries for what they were. And honestly, thinking about it, that is kind of terrifying. It's a really good argument, and I wonder if it would hold more water today as society becomes less ignorant and more tolerant of mental health disorders and how they truly can affect your brain. Right, but then what, like, she still killed two people. Yeah. Well, one person. Yeah. On the other hand, there's so <laughs> much premeditation that I feel like premeditation is usually the deciding factor, right? All of her actions were incredibly premeditated, and you could see that based on her notebook, her hit list. Yeah. Right? And the 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 guns, the train ticket, the fact that she had gone to another doctor's house, like she'd clearly been planning this for some time. Premeditation usually means intent, and it's harder to claim that she just snapped or it was like a crime of passion or just a sudden crime when there's so much evidence pointing to premeditation. But I also find it hard to say that just because the murder and her future plans to continue murdering were premeditated, that doesn't also mean that she wasn't pushed down that route as a direct result of her mental illness, you know? If every yeah. single day you're like, everyone <clears throat> is out to ruin my body. Yeah, but this, this is a failure of society. Totally. Nevertheless, it was that aspect of premeditation that landed Teresa Ramirez a guilty charge and two sentences of life without parole, ultimately. To this day, Teresa remains incarcerated at California's Valley State Prison, where she'll stay for the rest of her life as all of her appeals have been denied. She has always claimed no memory of the incident whatsoever. But in later years, she would go on to state that she recognizes with all the evidence, namely her possession of the murder weapon, and that a, she, and quote, <laughs> yeah. yeah, she, quote, could not dispute her identity as Dr. Tavis's killer, end quote. Um, and just to end the story, Kay Carter, she did recover, but she had permanent brain damage and like it literally ruined her life. She would end up dying years later as a re direct result of the injury she sustained from being shot in the head. And that is the story. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many disorders like this that really truly did not become a thing until, I mean, 
the 90s, that's 30 years ago. That's not that long ago. I'm pretty sure there are still people to this day who have learned something by just us talking about body dysmorphia tonight. Yeah. I mean, the people who are suffering from body dysmorphia cannot self-identify no. that they have body dysmorphia. That's the whole point of the disorder. Sad. Everything about Super it is sad. Super sad. It's really sad. Yep. It's one of those it's one of those stories that's so sad and tragic but almost feels unavoidable. Right? Once you like put all the parameters in, it's like, well that was bound to happen. Right. Right? Yeah. Her body dysmorphia became a resent the increased with her body dysmorphia. And she's like an exception to the rule because I also read that the statistic does not prove that body dysmorphia leads to violence more often than it doesn't. You know what I mean? No, I think it's a certain personality type. Yes. Like I can can definitely like empathize with the feeling that she had, not the revenge killing part, but like the, oh, this has gone wrong. Like everyone's had that experience where they're trying to do something and, and nothing's do, working. And they do something bad, and then they try to fix that, and then it's worse. And then they right. try to fix that, yeah. and it's worse. So if you put yourself in that mindset where she's feeling that way, not that it's necessarily true, but mm-hmm. like that's what her brain is telling mm-hmm. her, right? Like, imagine if you had a dent in your car, and you're like, well, I'm going to fix this myself. And then you do something to it, and it makes it worse. And then you're like, oh, well, now I've got to fix two problems. So you do that. And it makes it twice as bad. Now yeah. you've got four problems to solve. Yeah. And the difference is like fixing that dent and thinking like it looks worse. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. It's like. Everyone knows what that feeling is. And just in her case, it was getting better to a lot of people. She just never saw it that way. Right. If you imagine the weight of that on your brain and your feeling, your image of your, your self-image. Mm-hmm. Like, eventually you are, you like, I feel like you're going to snap. Not necessarily right. you're going to snap and, like, kill someone, but you're going to snap one way or the other. Totally. You're going to have, like, yeah. a breakdown. Yeah, you're going to have a breakdown. And I also feel like there has to be some sort of connection to what it stems from. I mean, undergoing a double mastectomy is traumatic in and of itself. Getting diagnosed with cancer is traumatic in and of itself. Right. And then just wanting to feel normal again, it that affected her in such a way and if it would have been treated properly from the beginning, right? And it's not her fault because it's no one's fault. Like you said, it's just the times. I think that the surgeons who talked about her behind her back and didn't say anything about it, I think they are partially to blame for how far it went. I don't think anyone's to blame for it ultimately leading to murder. But I do think that somebody should have said something. Yeah. Sometimes it takes something like that to change mm-hmm. the system, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's an unfortunate reality in life. Right. All right, you guys. What? I'd love to say it was a good story, but it was just a really sad story. I know. Good, but sad. All right, so you guys. So what I'm saying Oh, is- my God. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> All right, you guys. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We will be back very soon with a brand new episode. Again, thanks for being patient with us, you guys. We love you so very much. Please leave us a review and a rating. And of course, if you have any suggestions for stories, you can email us at letmetellyouastorypod at gmail.com. Follow Nils and I on social media. Nils is at Nils Davy. I'm at Sinead DeFries. And we will see you back for a brand new episode of Let Me Tell You a Story in a few days. Bye. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.